0: Welcome to season five of the Retail Tea Break podcast. My name is Melissa Moore, the Retail Advisor, and each week I'll be joined by industry experts, retailers and brands to dispel the myths, share their knowledge and give you an insight into the retail industry. You can listen back to previous episodes on your favourite podcast platform or on YouTube. And while you're there, please subscribe to the podcast so that you get to listen to it first every week. In the meantime, grab that cup of tea, sit back and listen in to season five of the Retail Tea Break podcast. Today I'm joined by not one, but four guests who together have over 100 years retail experience at senior levels across buying and merchandising. With expertise and knowledge ranging from homewares, gifting, toys, seasonal and beauty, they have a multitude of insights to offer us today. This dynamic team of colleagues share a passion for helping companies grow sustainably, guided by a belief that there is a better way to do business. They work collaboratively with their clients to generate genuine and profitable growth. Sarah Albright, Elaine Hooper, Neil Amir, Anna Berry, the co-founders of Retail 100 Consulting, welcome to the Retail Tea Break podcast.
1: Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you.
0: Oh, I'm so excited. We've never done this with four people, but I just thought, why not? The the chats we've had running up to today have been incredible. I think we're very like-minded. I'm very excited to have this conversation because of the expertise in the room. You guys between you have seen it all. So I'm really chuffed for you to join me today. So to kick us off in age-old style of the Retail Tea Break podcast, Sarah, in the time it takes to boil a kettle, which I'm told is about two minutes, Give us an insight into
2: your combined experience
0: within the retail industry.
2: So probably the biggest insight is the first thing we'd say if someone asked us about a kettle would be, is it branded or is it unbranded? What's your price point? Where does it sit in your pricing architecture? What's your margin? So intrinsically, we are product people. We've lived and breathed various categories over the years and as you kind of alluded to in your intro we all come from buying and merchandising backgrounds mainly in department store retailing but the absolute joy of department store retailing is we've worked on kettles but we've also worked on Christmas trees we've worked on mascaras we've worked on candles it's it's a real diverse kind of background of product categories we've worked therefore with a myriad of brands a myriad of suppliers and have the joy of of traveling the world which always sounds uber glamorous It, it has its moments when the toilet has no seat on it or something like that when you're in deepest darkest part of some country but a massive amount of experience in the sector and then just as many retailers sadly have been through in recent years where we were all at there was a restructure program going through decided the future in that retailer wasn't for us but that we've got all this knowledge and that we wanted to work together to kind of bring that to the fore Um and actually have found kind of it's not just retailers we've therefore helped we've been helping brands and it's not just actually our knowledge that we'd acquired over our combined 100 years that we've used we've actually been gaining new knowledge so be it learning kind of about warehousing or packaging kind of all the periphery areas of retailing that maybe not have been something that we'd spent a lot of time on in our buying and merchandising roles we're starting to pick up in the new business and as you say kind of just really want to help brands retailers suppliers make a difference in their business but also do that whilst having a lovely time and kind of you know it sounds all too good to be true but getting on with the people we're working with and without preempting a top tip at the end of the call, kind of that's probably a massive thing for us. If you kind of get on with the people you're working with and talking to, then that makes the day go a lot easier.
0: It's really refreshing to hear you say that. And I'm actually really glad you did because retail's stressful. And we've all been there in the past working for whoever it is where it's not always positive. It's not always, you know, constructive criticism. It's not always the right way to work, but the needs of the business meant that you've been spoken to in a certain way or stuff has to be done. It's so refreshing to hear you come together and lead the business and also, you know, give your expertise, lend this incredible knowledge with such genuine warmth.
2: I can always remember the amount of times i've had to say to a team retail is not life or death but sometimes it it definitely feels like that but it's it's an industry where there is often a lot of pressure and i think kind of work-life balance is has been a thing that retail has struggled with with a long for a long time but actually kind of you always get the best out of people if, if you give them what they need in terms of balance like that and you kind of take some of the stress off and you know mistakes happen and problems occur it's how you deal with those things and that you move on quickly as they say fail fast and and just carry on so yeah we kind of we've been through the the run of the mill of, of the stresses and the, the interesting bosses and that's probably a whole nother podcast around some of the characters that we've worked with over the years but It's been an amazing industry to us and actually built up some huge long-life friendships from it. So, yeah, we kind of thank it for that and seeing where this new chapter takes us.
0: Oh, I'm excited. And I'm sure the the brands and the retailers you're now helping are very grateful too. But that's really lovely to hear, Sarah. I suppose as we've alluded to, buying and merchandising is at the forefront of everything Retail uh, 100 Consulting does. So, Elaine... Look, I'm going to be really honest, buying and merchandising are seen as some of the nicer, maybe the fancier sides of of retail than some of the sweeping the floors and stuck in the shelves are. And I mean, look, as, as Sarah said there, sometimes we think of buyers as those jetting around the world on these fancy trips, you know, or merchandisers setting up fabulous window displays. Like it all seems very easy and fluffy and pretty on the surface, but it's not. It it really isn't. So I suppose at the essence, and you were telling me this, it's this mix of, yes, that creativity that you have to have. But nowadays, it's the mix of creativity with finance.
1: Absolutely. And that picture of it being completely glamorous and fun. I mean, I know it's not actually a buying film, but anyone that's watched Devil Wears Prada is like, my life is going to be so fabulous when I become a buyer. So I can completely understand why people have this perception about buying and merchandising. However, as with most jobs, the reality just isn't like that. But that said, there are some brilliant aspects to the role. So I'm not going to be all doom and gloom. And there is travel involved, but let me me paint a picture for you on that one. So for example, there I am, jetting off to India, and you might see me on LinkedIn posing in front of the Taj Mahal, you know, that picture everyone's got when they're, yeah, I have on. one. <laughs> and so people will look at that and go, wow, the life of a buyer, it's, it's just for me, it's nonstop glamour. But behind that, what people don't see as that it's you and the wider team, like you are preparing for this trip for weeks, months, sometimes, but it's involving such a wide team it's involving your merchandiser key and i know neil is going to want to jump in in a bit and add, add color to this so you're preparing with your merchandiser because you're looking at the performance with manufacturers that you're going to go and see you're then perhaps working with a tech team if you're lucky enough to have one to look at what product issues there might have been that you're going to need to raise with those manufacturers you're working if you're with your sourcing office, if you have one, to say, what new suppliers do I need to find? What does my trip going to look like? How are my existing suppliers preparing for my, you know, probably seven night flying visit in which I'm trying to cram in two months worth of work? And then you're also trying to get the best deal you can in terms of who can you bring on your trip with you? Because back in the day, it used to just be, a buyer going, but that's no good. You need your merchandise with you. Ideally, you'd need a designer or or someone from your tech team with you. So you're trying to eke out your travel budget. So you're flying economy and staying in some not quite as glamorous hotel as you might like. Just so that you can bring your wider team with you to have this really full experience. Then on top of that, you're trying to get to an Indian embassy before you start work to get your visa. You're trying to organize your itinerary so that you're not spending four hours in a car before you can even get to a toilet you know it's really not that glamorous and but that said it's it's a really exciting it's a really exciting experience to get to travel but you cannot do your job without a team of people working with you and in this example it's a merchandiser and you know I know Neil will will have some things to say about the perceptions of a merchandiser But just to say, you need to work with someone that gets as excited about a spreadsheet as I can get excited about a product, because otherwise it just doesn't work. So you need to be able to plan ahead. We used to work about a year in advance. But of course, at the same time, you're already trading that current season. So you've got one head in the year ahead. And that's why often a buyer will be like, hang on, what year is it? Because You might be buying for 2024 but you're trading in 20 end of 2022 for example it can get very complicated but you need a team of people with skills that complement yours but aren't necessarily your skill set so you need the spreadsheets you need a sound financial plan you need to plan the sales and risk you know neil and i used to work very closely together and my favorite expression was oh, look at this lovely, shiny new product I've just found. And then I'm sure I can squeeze this into the assortment. This is going to be fine. And he would probably bring me right back down to earth and show me why it actually wouldn't fit in. So, Neil, I don't know if you've got something you want to add to that.
3: Yeah, thanks, Elaine. I think maybe a merchandiser's job is more misunderstood than a buyer's job because I think when people think of merchandising, their brain, instinctively goes to visual merchandising
0: absolutely window
3: displays etc etc and the tr- you know the truth is my job could not be more different to that because one of them's very creative and one of them's very analytical and I'm definitely the more analytical person rather than the creative person so it's confusing because they've both got merchandising in the title and I've got no idea why
0: no, but actually, I'm really glad you you've picked up on that, Neil, because certainly, even working within retail education now, it is still a misconception that a VM is the same as a merchandiser. However, as you've said, completely different. Working in very different parts of business, yes, stock and the product is at the forefront, but that's it, and you can't have one without the other. By the sounds of it,
3: absolutely not. I would agree with that wholeheartedly.
0: Yeah absolutely and I'm really glad you've made that point it's very clear and again I wish a lot of retailers would make it that clear and I know we're going to talk about kind of shop floor and frontline stuff down the line here today but it needs to be clearer to them as well because what you both do or you have done in your previous worlds is so important to the shop floor but also to the customer but yet we don't really understand what you do so I'm really glad you've been so clear on that as to making us understand that the balance has to be there that you both need each other but actually nothing else then comes through the line without you. So I suppose, Neil, on that, we've spoken on the podcast a lot about data, but I suppose specifically it tends to, it tended to have been about customer insight, the role of maybe data for e-commerce or even social media. However, as you've just said that, for the physical store, we can't underestimate the data that you must have needed for your role and this idea of merchandising, whether it's across categories or different sizes of stores, that you need to look at that first party data all the time.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think customer insight and e-commerce data is incredibly important. It always will be, but it's kind of just, you know, two strands of data that we look at in buying merchandising merchandising to to really analyse a range and Really understand what's going on underneath to season on season improve what you're putting in front of your customer you you have to have to absolutely have to analyze you, i mean there's there's no way of doing the job without data and analytics really and i think you know if, if you really take it back to its core of what you're doing you're essentially taking your business's money investing it in product and leaping to make a return on it you know and the the, the 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 amount of cash that you deal with as a buyer and a merchandiser can be ginormous i mean it's huge huge. so you can't really kind of just select any products at random you know you've got to have a real plan in place to make sure that you're managing the risk around that financial financial piece and i think when it when it comes to data and analysis really you're looking at two sets really so there's the, the kind of macro data and then the micro data so macro could be anything from what economic conditions are you trading in what's the status of the market you're dealing with is it you know growing or declining what's going on with all your competitors and if you've got a weather dependent assortment you know has the weather really kind of impacted your sales in any way so really anything anything that's almost outside of your control but you have to kind of have an understanding of what it might do to your trading performance so that's really important and that kind of data is really going to impact your top line kind of planning. So whether you're going for a plus 10% or a minus 3%, do, do you know what I mean? That's going to really kind of help you put that into context. And at a more micro level, you'll start to look at kind of more specific to the assortment you're planning or the product types you're planning. So you'll you'll start to bring in last year's sales. So you know what worked, what didn't work, are there any trading patterns that you can kind of pull out? your stock levels in relation to those sales how many options you've got like have you got too many or too little do we need to kind of pull back or build on the option count how well the sell-throughs are doing so you know if if you bought a thousand units and sold a thousand units in which case you haven't bought enough or if you bought a thousand units and only sold a hundred units in which case you're having a nightmare and then margins so obviously each products whether it's you know it might be branded or own brand for example they'll have very different margins so it's about putting together the the right product proposition that's going to balance your margins as well so you can achieve your trading kpis or whatever financial kpis that your business is requiring from you and then you might also look at markdown so how many how many products are you selling on markdown or at what Kind of depth is in here? Is it 30% off? Is it 50% off? Is it 70% off? And what products are still profitable in Markdown? But as you've already said, Melissa, as well, it's when a buyer and a merchandiser work together is when you kind of create the real magic and get the best results. I don't want to kind of focus too much on the data because it's not the sexiest subject in the world and it could get really boring. <laughs> but, but I just actually, kind of want to.
0: I'm glad again then that you you've almost taken us through that because there's an awful lot of retailers out there and especially some of the independents or the smaller retailers who are confused by an awful lot of that Neil but also the fact that margin I think they just buy and I'm sure you've seen plenty of kind of retailers out there in the past that have done this they buy and they hope as opposed to buying doing the homework doing the maths really understanding what maybe they should be pushing that's really got strong margin, maybe what they need to have as part of the range just to have, but actually the margin's really small. So I'm really glad you've taken us through that, Neil, because I know and I've had these conversations over the last few weeks with retailers, there's not enough known unless you have huge buying departments out there and you have people like yourself who are very specifically employed to do that job really well. There's an awful lot of independents out there that just don't have the people and therefore they're just not sure what they're doing.
3: No, absolutely. And I, I kind of wanted to bring that a bit more to life by right? if I just kind of take you through a framework that might help, you know, like to build a range. Um, and as I say, I won't dwell on it, I'll rustle through. <laughs> if you if take for example, if you've got a hundred products and or to buy and you think, well, where do I start? As I said, you can't just go off and buy a hundred products without analysis, right? So depending on what product category you're buying, you'll probably you'll need to split it so you're managing your risk, right? So of those 100 products, 60 will be core products. When I say core, I mean they're tried and tested. Season after season, they're in the range, and they'll probably be, you know, your white plate, your white T-shirt, etc. Those products you'll have all the data in the world for. They're low risk. You know exactly how many you're going to sell. You know exactly how many to buy. So you place quite a big chunk of money behind those products. And the next 20 products will probably be, They'll also be low risk but you won't have as much data behind them because they'll be something like tried and tested products but you might tweak to color a pattern or whatever so you kind of got you kind of got the right amount of data to probably make the right amount of decisions but if you think you've got 60 and 20 products that's 80 percent of your assortments that you've planned and bought that's relatively low risk but from a customer point of view, it's relatively, it could be deemed relatively boring because it's just it's kind of your core product, right? So the next 20 products is probably where it gets a bit more interesting. So you'll probably place around maybe 15, the next 15 products, you'll have much less data to guide your buys because they'll probably be trend-led or new to the market, you know. Propelled by fashion or interior design or whatever, so you're placing your buyers behind them. You've probably got a little bit of data to use, but you're also taking a bit of a gut feel and using your experience to take a punt. And some of them will really, really work. Some of them really, really won't work. And because of that, the buyers on those will probably be quite conservative, because you, you know you're, you're trying to manage your risk. But the last five are probably the most interesting. This is what the buyers love is I call them wild cards. So let's just go for it. Because because we've planned, what, 95% of our assortment managing risk, we should be able to fit into our budgets 5% of the assortment that you can just go for it. And it's really, and it's really important to do that as well, because that's where you kind of really test and you really learn from what your customers want. And, and I see Elaine part- there
0: nodding yeah, away at the 5% going, this is where I had the fun. Exactly, Melissa.
1: Exactly. This is where I used to be able to, you know, I could bring in the crazy leopard print water bottle of with the pink lid, you know, but as Neil said, that's where we learned a lot because sometimes you might take a punt on a new brand and it actually turns out to be absolutely amazing and it's the thing that does generate a lot of interest and a lot of money and then you've got the data for the next season. So those wildcards are incredibly important.
0: It sounds fantastic. And again, Neil, it's really good to clearly lay it out like that. I feel an infographic coming on that might have to sit alongside this because it's really clear. And I think, again, it gives you that that kind of power to go crazy on the five percent, because as you said, you haven't taken a risk with the other 95. So it's it's really good buying behavior for buyers and merchandisers, I think, to align And move forward with, because again, an awful lot of people out there, they just buy on a whim and I've seen them do it and I know they do it. And then of course they come to sale time and there's too much stock and too much cash tied up, but we won't dwell, as you said, Neil. Anna, whether it's buying or merchandising or even stock management... All of this is fantastic at a kind of senior level, or I have to say an office level, but none of you could do what you did or even now without collaborating with those on the shop floor. So the front-time retailers, those teams that literally sell the product that you bought or you planned for, What what's that been like in the past or even now with the way you work kind of collaborating with the frontline teams?
4: I think it's it's absolutely critical. It's actually a really fun part of the job as well because the fun of bringing new products in is seeing the response when you get them out to branches and, and generally it's favourable. Um, and as both a buyer and as head of buyer, I used to visit, branches we used to visit branches twice a year all 40 branches when we were at John Lewis that's a big commitment and it was great at the time we then switched when online became bigger but I think all of us would say that there is nothing better than seeing product in situ um, and we would visit London but both big branches in London once a week really and it was about building relationships with those team because it was their business as well as our business and no one wants that head office versus shops dynamic, you know, us and them and and where we worked, it absolutely wasn't like that. And that's how we work with our clients as well. So it's absolutely about building relationships. And I'll give you a really good example. When we opened a brand new branch at Stratford, we invested two weeks in training the staff on the assortments that we had there because it was a brand new branch for us. It was opening up because of the Olympics. It was a much younger demographic. So actually, we needed to understand a lot about who the customers were going to be there. At that stage, I was buying, I think, jewellery and watches. And it was fascinating because the sales very quickly, where you don't have history and data that Neil is talking about, you want to run off quickly with what is working. And what we learned about Stratford is it was a younger demographic. There was a very young sales assistant, actually, which was very interesting in terms of dynamics of selling. And when I was buying watches, it was all the very high-branded fashion watches that were flying. And the classic watches that we were used to being in the bestsellers weren't working at all. They were completely different. Whereas the Reading branch that we knew and loved had a much older customer demographic and they sold classic watches very easily, but the very kind of bright fashion watches we bought in weren't their thing. So even though you are selling to a customer profile, there are different nuances throughout the areas that you trade in. And Stratford was a real extreme example of of how that worked. Another really big example was when I was head of buying. So we had Christmas. Sales point, you've only got 10 weeks to sell that Christmas stock. So you've got to get it right. And the trading works in waves. So you know that trees are going to be early on in the process when you launch at the end of September. Then it's going to come baubles and crackers and cards and wrap are all going to be last. And as a head of buyer or a buyer, you never get all the space you want in the place you want in a branch. So you absolutely have to trade with either the head of branch to get some really great space. Or the managers of that team to get them to flex space so communication the whole way through that season is absolutely critical so you don't miss the boat and if something's not working you need to get onto it pretty quickly the other thing that we could see coming was this trend of experiential which everybody's talking about now and pop-up shops are coming back that's great because people want to see product in real life certain categories so we had this great idea in Christmas and it became quite famous, the quality street idea of putting the quality streets in which you would you would mix and match the product you wanted. But my goodness, to deliver that was almost impossible. It was incredibly complicated. It meant building a site for, for this quality street brand, putting a brand in that we wouldn't normally have associated with us. And then having all of these different skews of sweets and how many sweets and how you would build it. And it was incredibly complex. So it was important that we were passionate about what we were doing, but also that we got the branches on side because they had to add significant additional staffing. So unless you have the branches engaged and they're excited about it, then you're not going to have it um, as a success. But what it did is they it drove enormous footfall, cues into the branches to do it. And as we were talking earlier about own brand versus brand, it was something differentiated that no one else had. So going back to Stratford was really ex- ex- uh, a good example because they weren't interested in own brand. They said, we don't really like your own brand, particularly the entry level. Our customers are not that interested. And we saw in the initial year that they sold very little own brands, but it took time for it to build because that was important to us in terms of our differentiator. We had the brands that everybody else had, but what we wanted was 50% of our sales. And in homeware, 70 plus percent of our sales were coming in an own brand. So those categories took longer to take off for the customers to understand it. But we had to say to the branches, trust us, they'll understand it. But also we'll help you tell your customers what's good about it, what's different about it, where the value is. So it's always about keeping that open communication and listening. Because as a head of buying, I would get real honesty from the teams of, we don't like this brand. We don't think it's any good. We don't like the price point. So occasionally you'd think, ah, I now see why this brand is not selling in this branch. It might be in the wrong place. It might be that it's duplicative and we haven't noticed that. But it also might be that their competition is really tough on that. So that's why they're struggling. So it was all about getting feedback from the branches rather than doing the head office I am and we will tell you what to do. We gained so much. And the guys in the team were all people who spent a lot of time building relationships with the teams in the branch because it's their business too. And the intention was that we all want the best for the business. And if they were telling you something about a brand, it was because it needed to be improved.
0: I love that. And again, it's really refreshing to hear that you wanted that communication, that those channels were always open and that it was a two-way thing, which is which is fantastic. And it actually in these days is definitely the way it should be because we know our frontline retail staff have so much more of a connection with our customers than a lot of us could ever have. So it's, it's really lovely to hear you say that, Anna. With your combined retail experience of over a hundred years, I can't let you go then without asking you each for a top tip. So Anna, let's come back to you.
4: So my top tip is always to keep your eyes wide open to what the next newest trend is. And this business moves really fast. And the way that I used to do that is actually get out and look at it. But also ask your suppliers when you're new to a role. It's always a great way to say, and I used to always ask them two questions. What are we great at? And what are we not very good at? And where you quite often learned was what we were missing. And So one of my top tips is absolutely to keep your eyes open to what the next trend is so you can get ahead of it. And, And we talk a lot about sustainability as being one of those. How do you do it? And how do you do it with conviction? And how do you do it profitably? It's quite a tough one to do, but absolutely getting on to the fact that it is going to be one of the key things that you have to work on in the
0: future. Fantastic. Really, really good. Elaine, what about you there?
1: So one of my tips is definitely, it's relationship versus results. So being a retailer, you're so KPI driven, it's all about what is your result. But do you know what, you really need to think carefully about your relationship with your wider team. And when I say wider team, I'm talking about your supply base as well, not just your internal team, it's your external team. So As an example a supplier could come to me mid-season and say elaine i'm really sorry i know we agreed these cost prices for this year something has happened i need to increase those cost prices by five percent in my head i'm thinking well i've already got a catalogue printed we've already got this promotion planned you cannot mess with my pricing but you have to ask the question why why is that supplier asking for that price increase And really, one of the best things I learned on a negotiation course back in the day was put yourself in that person's head. So they're not just asking for the hell of it. They're asking for a reason. It could be labor. It could be transport. It could be material. So just have that conversation. Why are you asking me? And inevitably, you can get to a place where you can find a solution. It might be a solution against future business pricing. It could be a solution for the now. But by finding a solution and showing that you're collaborating, the next time that supplier has got a brand new product and you might be first to market, or there's a new colorway, or you need a favour, you need to delay an order, by being collaborative and kind, I would say, has stood me in good stead throughout my entire career. So really please think carefully about that.
0: Yeah, really good message, really good tip. Neil, what about you?
3: You probably can guess. My top tip is data. Data is your friend. Use it. And if you don't know how to, find someone that does. Like really, really important. I think in retail, product is key. It always will be. Product will always be king. But if you support it with good quality data, you're going to drive your business to be the most profitable it can be
0: fantastic and I fully fully agree more data be more Neil I think that should be the message from today and
2: Sarah then
0: finally from you what's your top tip
2: so my top tip is really kind of it's a bit similar to Elaine's but it's around the people side of things and the people you surround yourself with nothing happens in retail without a strong team and understanding how you act as a leader how you act as a team members is really important and kind of making sure you you use everyone's strengths quite often we focus quite a lot on people's weaknesses but actually if you build to people's strengths you'll end up with a stronger team if you recruit based on what your team dynamics need you know sometimes it's it's easy to look at cvs in black and white and, and think the best candidate on paper but actually your team might be full of quiet people and you just need to bring in an extrovert to up the daily Atmosphere, you know, there's 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 different ways of looking at it, but intrinsically, kind of as retailers working together and and having fun, has to be a huge part of it because it can be a slog sometimes. And actually, if if sales are down and things are not going your way, if, if everyone's you know verging on the side of half empty, it could be a depressing place to be. And alongside that, you know, you will. You will build and maintain some amazing friendships out of working in retail it's just one of those industries where you you will know people for life and actually coming out of a retailer we've really understood the value of our networks and at the end of the day our friends because you know people have really come to the fore for us supported us you know been our cheerleaders and and that, you know, is is invaluable and, and not always the easiest thing to remember to do, but kind of really treating people well is is gonna kind of stay in good stead long term.
0: It's a really good message and I think such an so the right message to end on, absolutely, that that we need to be collaborative and work together, but treat each other the right way as well. Because when you do, retail is this most incredible place to work. So thank you for today so many takeaways but also i really appreciate the fact that with this 100 years experience you've dispelled a lot of myths today and i think that's really important there's there's a lot of clarity around either what buying and merchandisers actually do how to do it data neil i tell you be more neil is definitely going to be a big message from today we've got to look at the data but also working in the right way with the teams around us so really interesting conversation and I'm really grateful that we've had it so if you've enjoyed today's podcast please please like and share it remember you can listen back to past retail tea break podcast episodes on your favorite platform or of course watch us back on YouTube follow myself and the retail 100 consulting team on LinkedIn and across social media and I'll pop the the website link which is retail100consulting.co.uk I'll pop that into the show notes and then you can find the show notes and the transcript for today's episode on the retailadvisor.ie. So, Sarah, Elaine, Neil and Anna, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Elizabeth.
0: Thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's been a pleasure. Thank
2: you.